Well, good morning again, Fellowship Bible Church. Just before we dismiss the children to Children's Church, Amber and I want to say thank you to all of you for the way in which you not only responded uh, to the need of a sabbatical for us, but the way many of you have reached out to let us know that you love us and were praying for us. It has been a very healing and helpful rest for both of us, and your immediate willingness and graciousness was a huge part of that. And though there is, as always, sanctification that needs to continue to be done in us as God continues to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son, this was a huge help for us, and we are so grateful we missed you and are so thankful to be gathered with you this morning. Well, at this time, we'll dismiss the children, three years old through kindergarten, to Children's Church. If you would like for them to go, they don't have to go, but you are welcome to let them go. We are happy to have children stay in here, too, for the time in the Word. Uh, But just so you know, we do have that available. If you're unfamiliar with our church or that ministry, uh, someone in the back can help uh, get you to where those children, three through five, uh, should go. This morning, I'd ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to come back with a couple of different things before we get back into the Gospel of John. Today is Reformation Sunday, October 31st. We're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. And of course, uh, we will be turning to the Scriptures to understand better uh, about that. But Galatians chapter 1... Verses 6 through 9, I'm going to read as our uh, before sermon scripture reading. We have two New Testament readings this morning. If you're able to, would you please stand with me as I read the Word of God and you follow along in your copy. I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Under the, apostle, uh, under the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one preached to you, let him be a curse. Uh, in the original, this is the word anathema. Uh, uh, let them be damned. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You may be seated. That is the uh, word of God in the public reading. May it be a blessing to you. Would you join me once again in prayer? Lord, this morning, we are thankful to be able to open your word together, to study it together without a threat of persecution, Uh, but Lord, we know that we need your Holy Spirit to attend to our time. He is the one who inspired these words in the original autographs and carried men along as they wrote what was from your mouth. So Lord, we know as well, for those of us who are in Christ, who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we can and need the illumination of the Spirit in our understanding an application this morning. And I pray for those who are in our midst that do not know you, that at the preaching of the gospel this morning, you by your spirit might draw them to yourself, making them alive, giving them the gift of uh, grace and faith that they might believe the gospel and turn from their sin. 
So Lord, I pray that you would do that in your time according to your will. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to humble me through these texts this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On this Reformation Sunday, and maybe you're not aware that October 31st is uh, the day that we think about uh, the Reformation. It was the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door. And so it's appropriate for us to understand that this morning. We're going to talk about how we stand in that stream this morning. So on this Reformation Sunday, I wanted us to look at why the Reformation was so important but also talk about why we would also say the phrase reformed and always reforming. Now you say, what does this have to do with the Bible? What does this have to do with the church? Uh, you will see as we walk through it this morning. But that is the title this morning of our message, Reformed and Always Reforming. The late R.C. Sproul said a, of this phrase, always reforming, The point of that motto initially was that in the 16th century, not all of the errors in the church were reformed. Not all of the dirty linen was cleansed. There was still a lot of work left to do, and there was always a lot of work left to do, but always reforming does not mean always changing. Additionally, Sproul said, every heretic in modern church claims semper reformanda. That's the Latin for always reforming. So every heretic in modern church claims always reforming as an excuse for departing from the truth of Scripture. But that was not the original intent of that phrase. End quote from R.C. Sproul. But What made the Reformation necessary in the first place? And what does this have to do at all with us here at Fellowship Bible Church? And is there a way Scripture can help us think through this? And of course, the answer to that is yes. Steve already read for us one of our verses we're going to be looking at this morning. And we just read Galatians 1, 6 through 9. And there will be some other verses that we'll turn to this morning. So you need to have your turning fingers ready. Typically, here at Fellowship Bible Church, we walk expositionally through books of the Bible. That is, phrase by phrase, uh, uh, through a a book of the Bible, as we have been doing through the Gospel of John for the last 20 years, it seems. But, And we'll get back to that in a couple of weeks. But um, this morning, we are going to be doing more of a topical sermon, though we're not taking any verses out of context as we do so. Here's the main point this morning, and it's written for you on the back of your bulletin, your worship folder. And if you're uh, joining us via live stream... you're in the overflow room, I I pray that you have a copy of that or you should have received an email with uh, these points, uh, this main point and the three truths we'll look at together this morning. The main point is this, as we think about the Reformation, we think about what it means to stand in the tradition of the Reformation, but also to understand what it means to always be reforming. As we think about the Reformation, and it's important that we do, it is. We think about what it means to stand in the tradition of the Reformation, but also understand what it means to always be reforming. And I do want us to see three truths we need to remember on Reformation Day. Three truths we need to remember on Reformation Day. And you might want to scribble in there beside that and beyond, because this is our heritage. And it's important for us to remember our heritage. Number one is this. The first truth is this. We stand in the biblical and apostolic tradition. We stand in the biblical and apostolic tradition. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, you can borrow a Bible from us. There's one in, uh, there's several scattered in the row in front of you there. You can take that out and turn to page number 935. If you don't own your own Bible, you can take that Bible as a gift from us. 
of page 935, but the rest of us will take our Bibles in turn, as those with the Pew Bible are turning, to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 is which, that which uh, Pastor Steve read to us this morning. He uh, read it again. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We see in this, especially the second verse here, three aspects of what Paul is stating to Timothy about the passing on of truth. The passing on of truth. We see, we, we see heard, witnesses, and entrust. Those are kind of the, the, the three main words we see in that verse that are super helpful to us as we consider the fact that we stand in the biblical and apostolic tradition. Heard, witnesses, and entrust. What Timothy has heard from Paul, Paul says. What he has heard from him. Paul is an apostle. And Paul has learned from the Holy Spirit and his interactions with the other apostles. Uh, Paul gives testimony of this even in this uh, chapter here. We won't get into that much this morning. I would encourage you to to read it though. He, He speaks of this way in which he learned of things. And he also, in another part of his letters to Timothy, speaks of how Timothy learned these things. He had learned from his mother and his grandmother the scriptures that made him wise unto salvation. And the scriptures that were available to him were the Old Covenant scriptures, the Old Testament and so Paul is, is affirming the foundation that Timothy has from his mother and grandmother who gave him the scriptures. But he's also saying, I have given you some additional learning to do as well here. The things that you have heard from me, these things that Paul has learned from the Spirit, from the Scriptures. I mean, remember, before Paul was saved, he was steeped in the Old Testament. Uh, he was a, 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 a Pharisee, a Pharisee, he called himself, a, a Jew, studied under Gamaliel. He, he was under one of the highest teachers of the day. He had just not learned the appropriate uh, fulfillment of the Old Testament until he encountered that person who fulfills that on uh, the road to Damascus. And so he understood the fulfillment being Christ, and he learned from there. He learned from the Holy Spirit. He learned from the apostles. And what he was learning, what he had learned, he passed on to Timothy. Secondly, he says this is done in the presence of witnesses. This is done in the presence of witnesses. It seems likely that this is in the presence of the church, uh, the local assembly. Remember Paul and Timothy, they're essentially sent missionaries. Timothy is sent by Paul and the church to establish churches and and to plant churches and to establish elders in those churches, that those churches might be biblical, new covenant churches with proper leadership and proper doctrine. But there is ascending. There is a, a church that says, yes, we affirm and confirm these men. Uh, The recently departed uh, Dr. George Knight suggests that this idea of witnesses may be equivalent of an ordination council for Timothy. Those who bore witness to his 
training uh, commended him to gospel ministry. It wasn't just Paul who commended him to this, though as an apostle, certainly he had the authority to do that. But it seems best to understand this as the church commended him to this gospel ministry, this, this gospel work. And so the church as witnesses saw Paul discipling Timothy and passing on to him the things that were given to Paul. And so this is a piece of what Paul is saying. He, uh, Timothy heard from Paul in the presence of many witnesses. And these same things that Paul taught him in the presence of many witnesses, he is now to pass on and entrust to faithful men. This is the third piece of this puzzle that Paul lays out here for Timothy. This is the pattern of the New Testament church. It seems best to understand this as what each church did in appointing elders. Uh, you don't have to turn there. You can if you want to. But over to First Peter chapter 5. Think of what it says here. First Peter chapter 5. Seems that this becomes the pattern. <clears throat> we see Paul talking about passing things on. We see Peter here talking about things that he's passing on. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1, Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Notice what Peter does not say there. He does not say as an apostle. He actually has the right to say as an apostle. In fact, the wording that he gives next uh, gives an understanding that he is an apostle and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Uh, uh, Peter there is, uh, is essentially uh, giving his qualifications of being an apostle, though he never uses that terminology. I think it is to emphasize the fact that the baton is being passed on to the elders. And he is calling himself a fellow elder, not an apostle, though he is an apostle. So I exhort the elders among you, he says, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a, a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He, he saw Christ um, uh, suffering. Before that, he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration the glory of Christ revealed, but he also saw the glory of Christ revealed in what? The resurrection. He saw Christ, the raised Christ. But look at what he says. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And so we see here, what is Peter doing? You can turn back over to Second Timothy. What is Peter doing? He's passing something on. He's exhorting the elders towards shepherding ministry. And shepherding ministry includes discipleship. And includes what Paul is telling Timothy here. These, these things that I have given to you pass on to faithful men. And trust it to faithful men. This is why we say, as our first point says, we stand in the biblical and apostolic tradition. We stand in the biblical and apostolic tradition. Why? How do we know that? Because what Paul uh, charged Timothy to do, he did. 
And that got passed on and passed on and passed on. We have that linkage in church history. And uh, think of Acts 2 and verse uh, 42. There was no succession of apostles, but there was a succession of apostolic teaching. Acts 2.42 says, And they, the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What did the apostles teach? Well, what does Jesus tell them to do? He tells them to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have taught you. There is a pattern of apostolic teaching that goes on beyond the close of the New Testament canon. We, therefore... As believers, 2,000 years later, though there are differences amongst denominations, stand in the stream of that apostolic teaching. teaching. And this is why we would call ourselves small c Catholic. Small c Catholic. The word Catholic means universal. And so when we confess that we are a Catholic Church, we don't mean a Roman Catholic Church, that has its own meaning, uh, which, which I will unpack a little bit this morning in our time, but we talk about small c, universal church. Why? Why can we say that we can stand arm in arm with those who perhaps have some different practices than us? As I s- spoke about, how long has it been now? <laughs> uh, quite a few weeks ago about first, second, third order doctrines, Right? We stand together on first-order Orthodox doctrines. We should be able to affirm biblically-based creeds like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Listen to the Apostles' Creed. We don't often uh, talk about this in our church, but we ought to be able to affirm this together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Uh, That that is a a phrase that has a lot of um, consternation over time. Uh, Just know that it refers to the time where Jesus went down and preached victory to the demons. That's scriptural. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. The Holy Catholic Church. Again, the Holy Universal Church. There is one church. The communion of saints. The forgiveness of sins. The resurrection of the body in the flesh. And the life everlasting. Amen. We believe in those things. Likewise, we should be able to confess the Trinitarianism of the Nicene Constantinopolian creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all the worlds. Uh, in other words, uh, he, is, he is begotten of the Father from eternity, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance or essence with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man 
and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and, and sitteth at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost. Uh, we don't use that term. We say Holy Spirit, right? The, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. And I believe one holy, universal, Catholic, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life to come of the world. Amen. That idea of baptism there is not that baptism saves, but that is to what we point to a time of confession of our salvation. These we should be able to affirm together as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ as biblical orthodoxy and the small c Catholic universal church. Uh, again, please understand that. We're not talking about the Roman Catholic Church when we say that. That word Catholic means universal. We believe in, in one body. First Corinthians 12 talks about this. To deny these, it's to deny true Christianity. But there's a, a reason that the Reformation happened. And though the Reformation stands in this same tradition, not because it is tradition, but because it is biblical, and these formulations stood against heresies such as the Arians who tried to say that Jesus is the greatest created being rather than God. And that's the reason for these creeds. It's a, it's a formulation, it's a summation to say, this is what we believe about the Son. Because He is not a created being. He is God. But nevertheless, the Reformation happened, though it stood in concert with these early creeds. The Reformation happened because error had crept in concerning the gospel. And that is why we not only stand in the biblical and apostolic tradition as we summarized in the creeds, but we also why secondly, this is our second point, we stand in the Protestant Reformed tradition. We stand in the Protestant Reformed tradition. We have a heritage. We have a heritage that begins with the Bible and the teaching of the apostles that is handed down, as Paul said to Timothy, that is handed down generation after generation, that is, that is codified in creeds and confessions so that we might know what error is by summarizing what we believe. Nonetheless, the Protestant Reformation occurred. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 1. In verse 17, if you're using that pew Bible, that's page 883. Page 883. Romans chapter 1. Listen to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul, writing to the church in Rome who he was not able to visit yet, says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, summarized in 1 Corinthians 15, for us. A, 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 a statement of confession, by the way. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It was this verse that led, uh, that Luther read along with that which he had been learning through reading Jan Hus or John Hus. He was convinced by these things 
by Romans 1.17, that what the Roman Catholic Church had conceived as the means of salvation had gone awry. Luther sought to bring change to the Roman Church. He longed to return it to where it had been before the onset of such travesties as indulgences, documents purchased to release someone from the torment of purgatory that had grown in popularity when promoted by church leaders such as John Tetzel. Luther was wrestling with, how am I made right before God? Luther wrestled with his own sin He thought that he needed to do something to justify himself before God, so much so that for penance he would lay naked on the hard, cold, concrete floor of his monastic digs in order to to hope that God would forgive him of his sin through that penance. And it was through someone who had come before him that he would read and then encountering Romans 1.17 that he understood this. Luther's pen hammered out a fiery warning. Those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned together with their teachers. Luther's own crises of faith led him to such conclusions. His bold actions were not without the help of pre-reformers, as I mentioned, the work of Jan Hus who had died a martyr's death for daring to teach against popular Roman doctrines and practices he identified as anti-biblical heresies. But the work of the Spirit is uh, is wrought through the truth of the Scriptures. And Luther's reading of Romans 117 was that God ordained to open the eyes of the monk to to the divinely perfect work of grace and the finished work of Christ as the means by which man is justified. (laughs) Listen to Luther's words as he talks about what God did through Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. He said, When I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost, and the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through. Still yet, Luther was not seeking to start his own church. His hope was that in the challenge he presented in the 95 Theses, the church would bow to the authority of Scripture rather than to the authority of the Pope. As time would prove, though, Luther was eventually brought up on charges. It was from this former monk's protest that an outgrowth of gospel recovery occurred. I use that word recovery purposefully to highlight the fact that though we, uh, though that we celebrate the Reformation and are not Roman Catholic, we are still a part of the apostolic and therefore universal faith, as I mentioned before. Reiterating our first point, we still hold the truths which are found in the Apostles' Creed along with the Niceno-Constantinopolian Creed. It is true that the Roman Catholic Church can also agree with these creeds, but what was lost, as it were, somewhere in the doctrinal drift between AD 381 and AD 1517 concerning the purity of the gospel was regained in what Luther and the other reformers brought to bear upon the conscience of the world. Indeed, the Council of Trent formally canonized the errant ways of the Roman church in response to what Luther and by that time Calvin and others had brought in their protestation. In other words, these errant views of the Roman church were kind of uh, in places and and other places and not in other places, but together after the the Reformation started, the the Roman Catholic church got together and said, we got to do something about this. And they actually canonized against what Luther taught. 
Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And they pronounce anathema on that. Until that time, one could possibly say that, though in turmoil, the church was still existent in a universal form, even if in need of major reform to exist in unity. When Trent became the official canon of the Roman church, the division was almost certainly permanent. That's what Luther was trying to do. He was trying to bring reform to the church, and then the church said no, and there was a division. Because there was an errant gospel. And though we stand in that tradition, we too have our own convictions, which vary from that of our forebears, not the least of which is our view of baptism. But we can stand together with our brothers and sisters who affirm the five solas of the Reformation, and in some state that the salvation, that salvation is a work of God's grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. That is where we stand. That is where we must stand. This is the essence of the gospel of which Paul says he is not ashamed in the same set of verses God used to save Luther. Hear me, believer. This is that upon which our very eternity and even our life in Christ today, as those transformed by our triune God, it is this truth that being made right with God is all of grace. It is by Christ's finished work and nothing of us. And it is His righteousness that is credited to us so that we might stand before a holy triune God and by which we are to live holy lives even as we await His return. Amen. That is the solid ground upon which we stand. And yet, though we would claim to be heirs of the Protestant Reformation and heirs of the biblical and apostolic church, we are always in need of reform. That's our third point. There's always a danger of this truth, the gospel being compromised. So that is why we not only stand in the biblical and apostolic tradition and why we stand in the tradition of the Reformation, but why we stand in the stream of always needing reform. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 28. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 784. Page 784, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Here we find the Lord Jesus, just before his ascension, coming to his men to give them what we traditionally call the Great Commission. That is, what are they to do now that he is leaving? Of course, he promises them that the Holy Spirit is going to come and and dwell them and empower them for ministry. But what is it they are to do? Look at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, that's Matthew 28 and verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the commission of the disciples. This is the commission of the church. And notice it is not only bringing about gospel proclamation and a baptism as an affirmation of conversion and of discipleship, but also the passing on of truth. Bob Godfrey, in talking of the idea of Reformed and always reforming draws our attention to this 
passage to Matthew 28, 19, and 20, stating, This important passage has often been claimed by those who misuse the slogan, Always Reforming, to justify their innovative and reductionistic approaches to modern church life. But when we really look at the words of Jesus here, we see clearly that he did not say, Do whatever will advance the cause of evangelism. We must be, end quote from Bob Godfrey, by the way, we must be wary to see when there are those who are seeking to make changes to the gospel. We're always to keep a sharp eye on the gospel and that it is not compromised. This is Paul's whole reason for writing to the Galatian church. Look again at Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Paul is aware of the commission that Jesus gives the other apostles, and, and he being one as born as of late, he would say, born later in time. He knew this commission. He knew it was gospel commission. And he says in Galatians 1 6, as we read earlier, I am astonished that you, the Galatian church, who were established in truth, in the truth of the gospel, are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. But there are those, there are some who trouble you and want you to distort the gospel of Christ. What is at stake when it comes to getting the gospel right? What was at stake when Luther had his eyes opened and nailed those statements to the Wittenberg church door. What is at stake in 325 AD when the Arians were saying, Jesus is merely the greatest creation, he is not God. My dear friends, the gospel and therefore everything is at stake. Eternity is at stake in the promotion of a false gospel. We're not talking about the implications of the gospel here. That is that there are results of the gospel that are necessary because by God's grace we are transformed. But the addition or subtraction of anything from the gospel is damnable. That is what Paul says here. But even, he says in verse 8, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be anathemad. That's why we sometimes tag the word damnable to heresy. Why? Because eternity is at stake. Eternity is at stake. We are to stand faithfully in the scriptures And to see how those who came before us did this and follow their example in defending the faith once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude 3 states. We stand in that. And in light of that, I must ask, what is your assurance? What is your assurance? Are you depending on what you have done? Or what Christ has already done in order to be reconciled to God.
You know, it's unfortunate that the label reformed in our day uh, can merely just mean this is what I understand about salvation in regards to things like Calvinism and the predest- and predestination and the sovereignty of God and salvation. Very, very, very important things. But what was uh, what was recaptured? What was regained in the Reformation? It was the gospel. It was the gospel. That is what is up of utmost importance. We must get the good news right. Therefore, as we reflect upon what we, and I mean that as an individual, as you or I believe, where is our hope? Is it that we have the right theology? I'm not saying that theology isn't important. Theology is important. We must understand what the scriptures say and we should be able to distill those things down. Theology is important. But getting my theology right doesn't save me. Amen. The gospel. God saves me. Amen. Through Christ. And does that mean that we have a right understanding and a right theology of the gospel? Yes, we, we should. We, we need to. But it is God who saves me through the truth that I am a sinner who has fallen short of, short of God's glory and that Christ came and lived a perfect life that I could not live. He died the death that I deserved, taking on the wrath and justice of the triune God upon himself so that I would not have to. And three days later, he rose again victoriously over showing his victory over death and sin. And he ascended and is sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's coming again. Kind of sounds like the apostolic and Nicene Creed, doesn't it? It's the gospel. If you are depending on what you have done, you're not holding to the biblical apostolic reformational truth of the gospel. You may be holding to a works-based righteousness of which there is no end of works that you could do because you cannot fulfill the law. Jesus did that in your place. We must turn from our sin and trust in Christ alone. His perfect life, death, and resurrection. So my call to you is, if you've not done that, to do that, to turn from your sin, to trust in Christ alone, to be reconciled to God. For those of us who are in Christ, we are to p- depend only on His finished work and what uh, He has accomplished in us. We are to disciple one another in this truth and point the lost to this only hope that mankind is sinful and Christ is our only rescue. We are reformed And yet always reforming because there is always, always, always a threat to the gospel. We must stand on scripture and the fruit of faithfulness to it in the past and in the present. And we pray into the future. Would you pray with me?
Lord, it is with joy that we bow our heads if we are in Christ, because we are reminded that the veil has been torn and our access to you through the Lord Jesus Christ is, um, we are able to do that because of the finished work of Christ. Lord, we recognize that um, you use imperfect men, such as the man standing behind this sacred desk, to proclaim truth. But it is your spirit who perfectly applies that truth to the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. And so I pray for those who do not know you in our midst, Lord, that today might be the day that they would turn from their sin and trust in you alone. And Lord, for those of us who know you, may we, de- may we indeed rejoice in the truth of the gospel. And may we proclaim it boldly and with love to those who need to hear it for the conversion of their souls. But also may we preach that truth to ourselves daily. That we might remember that, Lord, the root of our salvation is justification by faith alone in Christ alone. But that there is a fruit of gratitude that is being worked out by your spirit in those who know you from that place of justification. And may we remind each other of that truth when we are down in spirit. May we lift each other's heads, not toward our faces, but toward your face. And so, Lord, we pray for that encouragement today. In Jesus' name, amen.